The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. You're so advanced in Puerto Rico. So advanced in Puerto Rico. And you guys question me. No, no. Oh, I I just I think we realized something here. What? Plantains are brain food, right? (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm just saying. Obviously, very I'm giving a a compliment to the people of Puerto Rico. You have to bring plantains into this. What is it? The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This for another episode on the Blaze Radio Network. Thank you for being here. If this is your first time, I hope you're looking for a voice of reason, an American Muslim patriotic voice that believes that we in America have a responsibility, and especially as American Muslims, have responsibility to take advantage of the freedoms that God gave us by living in this country and give back by being the place where the beginning of Reformation begins, the beginning of the root cause of counter-radical Islam can begin. And week to week, I hope this program, this podcast, is my small contribution to that cause. And we're part of the Muslim Reform Movement. We're part of a lot of work to begin to raise the bar from that low, sometimes soft bigotry of low expectations that we ignore the Arabs, we ignore the Muslim community. And I hope here we begin to shed light on what the important what the importance is of the antiseptic of sunlight. Muslims this week are beginning our second week now in our holy month of Ramadan. Ramadan is a month of spiritual atonement, of reflection, of humility, of family, of community, of of looking back day to day in that 30 days, 29 or 30 days of that ninth lunar month, to reflect on what we have to be thankful for. And all of faith traditions have those moments of gratitude, those moments of fast, those moments of abstention from things that mean a lot in order to let God know that we worship Him, that we thank Him for all that we have. And Ramadan is no different from that. I want to start with a story out of Denmark that... I posted as what I thought was just a a level of insanity on my Facebook page. And I have to tell you, some of the responses I got reminded me of one of the things I think that we seem to forget, which is, you know, listen, there has been no one, I think, in the Muslim community in America that's been tougher on my own faith community coming from a position of love, coming from a position of devotion and a, divi- a position of practice than myself. And, uh, you know, if it was left up to me, I would spend a lot more time talking about the beauty of Islam, the beauty of the faith that I personally practice. But that's not really going to solve the problem, is it? I've always felt that you have to spend your time on the area. Just like when I see my patients in my office, I spend most of my time in that 15, 20, 45 minutes I have with my patient dealing with their disease. 
I don't go through and talk about their healthful runs, their swimming, their diets, uh, the, the, the good days that they eat the healthy things, uh, the days they stay not smoking. No, I spend the time talking about those habits that can change, what they can do to improve their blood work, what they can do to prevent cancer, and what they can do to maintain health, and what medications they should take in order to prevent disease. Well, this is where I spend most of my time with the Muslim communities. How do we counter Islamism? How do we counter those things on the conveyor belt towards radical Islam, towards militancy? How do we counter the separatism? How do we counter the misogyny, the anti-Semitism, the homophobia, the aspects of radical Islamism and political Islam, specifically Salafi jihadism, that backward thinking that invokes militaristic approaches to Western society, to free secular liberal society? So, having reminded all of you of that, as I approach this news story this week that was described in the New York Times, that was described in the Washington Post, described in the UK's Guardian and the Times and elsewhere in, 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 in European newspapers and obviously in all the Danish newspapers and Copenhagen on, I think it's important that... You know, listen, when, when you approach this podcast, you come to listen to authentic Muslim voices that can be Muslim, that can be Islamic, believe in our faith, and yet reject all of the aspects that are threats to Americanism, to American society and the American Constitution. So if there are Muslims out there, some of you may feel we are mutations of an Islam that's incompatible with Western democracy, I would tell you that we are silent leaders, and some of us not so silent, but that we are ultimately the future of a faith that will defeat theocracy. So, this week, a minister in Denmark, Inger Storzberg, she made the remarks in a newspaper column in which she said that, and this follows from a previous post, in which in her Facebook post, she posted a picture of her eating cake. And she suggested that Muslims fasting for Ramadan should stay home from work to, quote, avoid the negative consequences for the rest of the Danish society, close, close quote. And then she wrote a newspaper column earlier this week, five days ago, in which she called the adherence to the religious practice a danger to us all. She said the month-long Ramadan holiday, which began last week, involves daily fasting from dawn to dusk, a period that in Denmark lasts up to 18 hours a day during the spring and the summer. Stolzberg pointed in particular to bus drivers and people working in hospitals. Her comments prompted criticism from Muslims and immigration advocates. And then obviously they quoted some Muslims who were quick to jump on the victim bandwagon. Now, you know, listen, I, I, I don't want to, we can get into some of the theology. Maybe I'll do that in the next segment. Uh, granted, I mean, look, at what, what do Muslims do? We, we fast from sunrise to sunset, from dawn to sunset. Here in Phoenix, I wake up at three. We have a, a heavy breakfast and we stop eating and drinking anything at 4.05. And then we break our fast later in the day at sunset, which is at 7.30. So that's a 15 and a half hour fast. Now, you add two and a half hours to that, 
as you get more north. What do you do in places like Alaska where the days could be 20, 21 hours? So obviously the vast, vast majority of Muslims adapt a moderate interpretation of their faith. So there's the extreme, which is to adhere to the letter of the interpretation of what sunrise to sunset is without any mention of where you are, etc. But you look back on the reality and you realize, well, the Prophet Muhammad was in the Arabian Peninsula, so obviously they did the fast there. But there are sharia, there are fatwas, rulings passed for those who may live in areas in which it just does not make sense to follow it to the letter of the law. So what you do is you follow it to the area nearest to you in which it makes sense in those time slots and you follow it there. So Alaska may not make sense, so they may follow Canada, they may follow Washington State, whatever's the nearest locality of communities that you can follow that makes sense. 18 hours might be pushing it, but I don't think it is. But let's look at the comments of Ms. Stogeberg. First of all, the insulting aspects in which she takes it upon herself to, to eat a large cake and say that Ramadan is a danger to the, to the state of Denmark. Is this a reflection on Marie Antoinette telling the poor that they... Why are they hungry? What should they do? They should go ahead and just eat cake? Is that is that what she's insinuating? Maybe. I really don't care. And Muslims shouldn't care. But I think it's worthy of conversation because truly, truly, you can laugh at religion, you can be an atheist and say how ridiculous it is that anybody prays to God and have the argument in which you mock God uh, to those of us who believe in the God of Abraham, that may be insulting, or you may just dismiss it and say this is part of the beauty of free speech, is that people can insult anything they want as long as they don't infringe on our rights to believe. We don't infringe on their rights to reject and believe in whatever they want. So having said that, the issue is not her mockery of religion. The issue is what is the pathway? There are certain things that Muslims, Islamists especially among them, and especially the militants among the Islamists may do, that you want to reform, that you want to defeat and purge out of your society. And if you believe that the spiritual pietistic aspects of Islam are those aspects in which you can begin to challenge and confront Muslims as being a vehicle to enabling reformation, I can't tell you how misguided that is and how wrong it is. Nowhere in history has there been shown to be Jewish Reformation, Christian Reformation, or any Reformation of a strongly held belief in which the confrontation of personal pietistic practices is the way to begin or end a conversation about irrational beliefs. When you look at the reform that I've been talking about, counter-Islamism, we're talking about separating mosque from state. We're talking about defeating all those Sharia interpretations that talk about penalties for crimes, for stealing, for, for thievery, um, rape, blasphemy, apostasy, all these things that are part of the Sharia doctrine, 
need to be defeated and thrown into the dustbin of history. That is where Muslims need to be confronted. That is where we shouldn't coddle them with the bigotry of low expectations. But unfortunately, we have now the last week spent our time talking about a minister in Denmark who decided to mock fasting and to really join to really join the ranks of the Chinese tyranny, which for years, every year, our U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom that I was a participant of for four years from 2012-2016 noted that their mockery of fasting in which they would force-feed Muslims and go and arrest them if they did not eat a sandwich at lunch and show that they are not fasting, that somehow they felt that the practice of Ramadan united the Muslim community in a way that was a threat to China. So it wasn't to them about, as this minister in Denmark, Tuxburg, said that it was because of safety of drivers, of bus drivers, of healthcare workers. No. For the Chinese, it was about unity under the Chinese government. So when we come back, let's talk about some of the other rationale that this minister used and how harmful it is to actually then begin to alienate the very people that you want to lead the reforms against all of the aspects of, of, of public sharia that are a threat to Danish societies, to British societies, American societies that we truly need to, to defeat. And while the pietistic are the ones you want to engage in that and lead that war. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. Give me some spinach. I want to eat mm. spinach like Popeye does. Right? She went out and got some spinach. Mm. Dumped it into a pan, heated it up, plopped it on a plate. Here you go. There it is. I don't know if you're going to like that. Chow time. Oh, of Chow course time. I'm going to like it. <laughs> I vomited. <laughs> About 30 seconds after I put it in my mouth. And then you then you took on Wimpy's diet, right? Which is just a bunch of hamburgers. <laughs> yes. Pat, Pat Gray. Gray. Weekdays from noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We were talking about, last segment, about how confrontational, what aspects of Islam, of Muslim practice, should the West confront? So, so what should be confronted? This Danish minister, Ms. Stojberg, said back in March 2017, she posted a picture of herself on Facebook with a cake celebrating the passing of the country's 50th immigration restriction. And she said, today, the 50th restriction was passed on immigration. This must be celebrated. She wrote in a post that showed her holding the cake, which was decorated with fruit, the number 50, and a Danish flag. The post caused an outcry, and at the time, a backlash against all the cultural wars and national identity. Now, I don't have a problem with the celebration of Danish identity. I think that the mixing that she did of the immigration issue 
with then her posting a picture of a cake saying that Ramadan and the fasting is the danger to all of us, that is a problem. So let me tell you why it's a problem. I, as a Muslim, don't care and don't give a hoot if anybody mocks my fasting. That's between me and God, and I don't do it for anybody's favor. But the respect of the Yom Kippur fast, the respect of the Lentian fast in Christianity is about a spiritual depth of a society in which you realize that the more religious and God-fearing your neighbors are, the less likely they are to have a unleashed immorality, corruption. And de Tocqueville in Democracy in America talks about the fact that it is not democracies that need martial law or military tyrannies. It is, and it is not God-fearing people in democracies, but democracies would need martial law, he said, if they did not have God, if they did not fear God and have a humble humility in their morality before God. So therefore, societies that don't have God, that are not under God, as in American democracy, in which morality and their check on morality is first to God, will ultimately be Darwinian in nature and ultimately may end up not succeeding. And we see this happening in Iraq. We see this happening in Afghanistan over and over where a society, and I would tell you not because of Islam, but because of Muslims, have lost their way and have become chaotic. So Muslims who do not get to the root humility of God, humility before God, have rejected the Islam that I learned. So their version of Islam as Muslims is a draconian, tribal, corrupt, Darwinian practice. And I would tell you that as many in the West start to look to finding touch points in which they can mock or criticize Muslims for their faith, uh, I would tell you that what's your strategy? Think about it. What's your strategy? If your strategy is to empower the faithful, to reject theocracy, to empower the faithful, to reject the men with beards and robes who are radicalizing their communities, who are the anti-Semites and misogynists, then I would imagine for the credibility of their movement, for the, for the uh, um, faithful to have a strong courage, most of the courage I get, if you feel you want to call it courage, so be it. But most of the courage I get, I get from my relationship with God. And I strengthen that in my month of Ramadan. I strengthen it in my spiritual practice of prayer five times a day, of fasting from sunrise to sunset. And it is up to a Muslim to determine whether that will then in any way, could in any way harm somebody. So if you're a heart surgeon, a bypass surgeon, who is, or a transplant surgeon who's due to do a lung, cardiac lung transplant on a patient that may take 8 to 10 hours, obviously it is incumbent on you, I would think, if you feel in any iota that one stitch, one blink, one ounce of energy that you bring to that patient will be compromised by your fast, then you should not fast and make it up some other day. That's not my ruling. That is a rational, moderate ruling that an individual would make between him and, and or her and God. So this is the challenge of moderate Islam, is that do you make 
a moderate, reasonable and rationed, rational interpretation of your practice. So in the conversation I had on Facebook and elsewhere, people were saying, oh, uh, uh, bus drivers who are thirsty and are dehydrated are going to be dangerous. They're going to cause accidents. We should not allow Muslims to fast. What about healthcare workers? On and on. And let's take this to the reductio absurdum is, is do you then fine if you think fasting Muslims who haven't eaten or drank for 15, 17, 18 hours are a danger to society, then what about personality disorder patients, anorexics, bulimics, cancer patients who may be on chemotherapy that may not be taking that much in but may want to work and feel that they are at their full capacity? How much cognitive, physical skill sets need to be ascertained and interfered in by government in order for the rule against Muslims to be made? Or are you just putting this against Muslims because of the terrorism? Which is actually where every conversation I had on social media degenerated into, which is I pushed back and I, they started to say, I would want to know if my airplane pilot had not had anything to eat or drink in the last 18 hours, so therefore he should not be flying. I said, okay, great. So from now on, we should have a announcement by the pilot prior to departure as to when his last drink of water and when his last meal was before that plane takes off. And that's absurd. So when you talk about personal faith practice, we take it upon the trust that we have in that individual. And then people then started comparing it to alcohol and drunk driving and all this. kind. That's absurd. That is absurd. Drunk driving can be monitored. People look and appear inebriated. They can be reported. So just as Muslims have to be accountable to the people around them, if a person before you that happens to be Muslim appears to be lightheaded, appears to be functioning at less than full capacity, and he has the lives of people in his hands, then you should report them as being lacking capacity. Anything short of that? with the government and a minister giving a speech or writing a newspaper column about how Muslims and their religious practice are a danger to all of us is absurd in the religious freedom realm and is even more harmful. If you're trying to engage Muslims in a respectful way about their faith, as you call on them to reject the Islamism from within, fasting is not part of the Islamism. Fasting is what strengthens them to take on the political Islamist movements, to take on the Sharia interpretations that calls for the treatment of anybody else in an unequal fashion, that to take on the Islamism, the Salafism that tells them to, to, to control other people's speech or to look backward to the 7th century instead of the 21st century. So whether it's Minister Stolzberg, whether it's others that call on this uh, war against anything Muslims, I would tell you, wake up. You're no different than any tyranny, and you're going to also end up putting your country, I think, in a lesser hand against the Islamists that are working and, and have been spreading like wildfire their ideas that I think when Muslims aren't exposed to freedom and liberty, they will become Islamist. But if they're exposed to freedom and liberty, they will reject Islamism. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser.
on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You know, I have to tell you, one of the most... One of the greatest things that I am thankful for is that my father and mother decided to leave Syria and come to the United States. And I was blessed to have been born in this country and have the resources and the freedom and the liberty to live that American dream, to set my sights on something and work my rear end off to try to get there. And then join the U.S. Navy and try to serve in protecting the values of this country, the values that I was taught by my parents. Had I been in Syria today, had my parents not made that faithful decision. Uh, now, certainly they had suffered quite a bit, as, as their parents had. And uh, that obviously led to their choice to leave. But they were smart enough to choose America. They were smart enough to choose liberty and the greatest democracy on the planet. Now, we were talking the last few segments about some of the insanity of uh, addressing personal pietistic practices like fasting as being a threat to society. When it's not only not enforceable, it is actually the practices that you want to that you 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 want to instill. Let's look at China. I think in China you have some examples of how an anti religious tyranny can to the extreme fast-track the radicalization of Muslims. Now, we may not know that's happening because China is such a tyranny, but we see this every day from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to Yemen, Iran, Syria, countries in which certain practices are treated with torture and tyranny causes actually the opposite response in which the dictators want. Maybe it's the response they want because the dictators, especially the Arab dictators, want to use the existence of militant Islamism to justify, to legitimize military control. There's a story this week at ABC News about China. They talk about Omir Bakali and other detainees in the far west of China's new indoctrination camps. And this is about the Uyghur Muslims, 15, 20 million Muslims who uh, are part of China, Chinese citizens, and they are told systematically to disavow their Islamic beliefs, criticize themselves and their loved ones openly in an indoctrination process, and then give thanks to the ruling Communist Party. And Omir Bakali is a Kazakh Muslim. He refused to do that. He was forced to stand at a wall for five hours at a time. And a week later, he was sent to solitary confinement and deprived of food for 24 hours. After 20 days, he became suicidal. The psychological pressure is enormous, he said. When you have to criticize yourself, denounce your thinking day after day, minute after minute, your own ethnic group, as he broke down telling the reporter, Chinese authorities in a heavily Muslim region of Jingjiang have ensnared tens, possibly hundreds of thousands of Muslim Chinese in mass internment camps. This detention campaign has swept across the Jingjiang area, 
half the area of India, leading to what the U.S. Uh, AUS Commission on China last month says the largest mass incarceration of minority population in the world today. The internment program tries to rewire the political thinking of detainees, erase their Islamic beliefs, and reshape their very identities. So Chinese officials have largely avoided comment on this, but ultimately... They've said in state media that ideological changes are needed to fight separatism and Islamic extremism. Now, the frightening thing to all of you out there is, obviously, I say this all the time. Islamists need to be defeated. The ideologies need to be changed. But it needs to be done through the light of freedom and debate, not through brainwashing internment camps. Now, obviously... The West is not China. We are democracies. We are liberal democracies. But it is very poignant to note why autocratic methods do not work and learn from what happens to Muslims under autocracies that claim to be fighting Islamism but are actually simply trying to stamp out all Muslims in Islam as a faith in their area. The program is a hallmark of China's emboldened state security apparatus under the deeply nationalistic hardline rule of Zheng Xiaoping. It is partly rooted in the ancient belief in the transformation through education taken once before to terrifying extremes, as ABC points out, during the mass thought reform campaigns of Mao Zedong, the Chinese leader sometimes channeled by Qi. James Millward, historian Georgetown, said that cultural cleansing in Beijing's attempt to find a final solution to the Zhengqiang problem. The internment system is shrouded in secrecy, but really no publicly available data is there. State Department says there's somewhere in tens of thousands. A Turkey-based TV station run by Zhengqiang exiles said that almost 900,000, close to a million, were detained citing leaked documents from the government. The Chinese refused to comment on this. So, ultimately, they're told when they're given their food, they're put in these camps, and that in order to be liberated someday from the camp, as they get the food, they're told to thank the party, thank the motherland, thank President Xi reject their faith, reject their family, reject their scripture. He was kept, Bakali talks about being kept in a locked room almost around the clock with eight other internees who shared beds. Now listen, this experience is not only unique to Muslims in China. Christians are abused, are tortured for their beliefs. Anyone who does not follow the party is part of the abuse, but each has its own flavor. As you can see with the approach to Muslims, they are obviously aware of Islamism and will use the Islamist threat in order to recognize that that's the most potent part of the political threat from Muslims against them. Because many Muslims who are not Islamists are not going to be a threat to the Chinese, to the Chinese identity, the Chinese nationalism. Now, they may be, obviously, as my family was in Syria, they may be a threat to tyranny, 
to autocracy as any free-thinking Muslim would be. But obviously, the Islamism, the desire to make China or, or the Kazakh area into an Islamic state is the immediate threat. So as we look at strategy, as we look at what we can learn from tyrannies, I would tell you that we just need to be aware that as we also defend the freedom in China, in that same area, they force Muslims to break their fast. They will pour water down their throat until they know they've drank during Ramadan and that way they're not fasting. So does that work? That Muslim then will then fast another day in some other month when the government doesn't know he's doing it. And for those of you who believe that Muslims commit taqiyya, how come all these stories we're hearing out of China, they're not committing taqiyya, they're going to jail, they're going to, they're going to encampment, internment camps, fighting, trying to pledge allegiance to the tyrannical Communist Party because they are proud to be Muslims and are not going to lie about it. So just uh, that's something to bookmark. It's obviously simply the militants who will use terror, which is the ends justifying the means, and those who lie, who do taqiyyah, is about the ends justifying the means. So, I pray that not only these Muslims, any free sentient individual who doesn't want to live under the tyranny of China begin to revolt against their government, begin to seek freedom and come together blind to faith, but united under the universal desire for universal human rights and the dignity of every individual. I think for those of you out there looking for a strategy, it is a strategy to embrace free-thinking Muslims who want liberation and want to be free against Islamists, against all tyrants. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Every Friday, Glenn talks to Bill O'Reilly. All I can tell you back is that I have to now go through the court system. I tried to stay out of the system to protect my family. I can't. Bill O'Reilly joins Glenn again on radio Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern. The attacks on me are relentless. They're not going to stop. Everybody knows why they're in play. So all I can do is now go through the legal system. Tune into the Blaze Radio Network or listen later at glenbeck.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play Music. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to end this week talking about Iraq. As we and and, and those who are in Washington and New York are, are just so obviously pathetically um, distracted the 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 loss, the surrender of Iraq continues. The Obama surrender continues. And I hope President Trump and his 
fantastic advisors from John Bolton to Mike Pompeo and others wake up to begin to, I'm sure they're awake, but uh, I hope they wake up the rest of America to bring our attention to what's happening in Iraq. We pulled troops out of there. We, Obama sort of left that place completely without any chaperoning. And slowly, the Shia have militarized Iraq and made it into a client state of Iran. And we've talked about that before here. Well, this week, the Iraqi Electoral, Electoral Commission, last a week from yet, a week from today, last Saturday, said that a bloc led by a populist Shiite cleric, let me tell you his name, see if you can remember this, Muqtadar al-Sadr, who fought, remember him? He was the sworn enemy of U.S. troops during the Iraq War. And his party won the most seats in the Iraq's, in Iraq's national parliamentary elections. And now they called it the Marching Toward Reform Alliance with Iraq's communists, won 54 seats. So the communists and al-Sadr's party now... Is al-Sadr a fan of Iran? Not necessarily. He's a militant Shia cleric who is at odds with the Khomeinists. So it's a mafia, like two different mafia families that are competing for, I would say hearts and minds, but these are not moderates. These are militants that are competing for attention within the militant radical Islamic supreme councils that they want to set up. The Conquest Alliance earned second place with 47 seats, while the Victory Alliance, headed by Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, came in third. Al-Sadr did not run for a seat in the parliament, so he cannot become prime minister. But he's the head of the alliance, so he will play a significant role in deal-making political wrangling that goes into putting together the Iraqi government. So... What they're trying to do is some are trying to contest the elections. They're saying that the voting system was rigged. It was put in by a Spanish company that they feel allowed it to be hacked. General Mattis said earlier this week that the U.S. stands by the Iraqis' electoral choices despite al-Sadr's surprise win. And even General Mattis praised Iraq's move toward democracy. Uh, well, the Purple Fingers were around back during general, uh, during. Um, previous generals in the area and President Bush. And I think we'd be in a different place if President Obama had not withdrawn American influence. With that, with the lack of American influence, we see now the rise of communist influence, the rise of militant Islamist influence. I don't care if it's against Iran. They're in that same Shia crescent. There's always going to be infighting but ultimately they all swear enemy against israel they swear enmity against the west against america al-sadr is personally responsible through his preaching and militancy for the death of hundreds if not thousands of american lives in iraq one of the lead antagonists in the war in the insurgency against the American attempt post Saddam Hussein to stabilize Iraq and bring forth a democracy in which the Iraqi people had a choice. Do they have a choice today? Maybe electorally, but it's a majoritocracy. It is not a place that it appears in which minority rights are being protected. It does not be a, uh, appear to be a place in which the Kurdish 
have significant influence on the central government. They might have some autonomous control over their area. But again, the United States has abandoned the Peshmerga, the, the Kurdish areas, and, and I can't tell you how much that saddens me. Countries like Iraq will only succeed when they remain diverse. Syria, I testified uh, to Congress in 2011 when the, when the revolution began. I said, you know, their chance for success in the future is going to be dependent on the maintenance of their diversity, where you have Alawites, Shia, Sunni, Salafi, <laughs> Christian, Druze, on and on, secularists. With that diversity, with 5%, 10% here, 10% there, 60% here, Sunni, etc., there was a chance. There were no Jews left in Syria, by the way. So for those who think that Assad protected minorities, just ask any Jewish friends that might have relatives that used to be from Syria. Long before the revolution started, the Jews had no home in Syria. Thanks to the Arabism, the, the hate, the anti-Semitism fueled by the Assad regime and their Khomeinist friends. But at the end of the day, Iraq this week, being turned over to alliance of communists and al-Sadr, should tell you that now the enemies of America are running the country that we gave our blood with our sons and daughters and our treasure and the amount of cost that that war cost. Last week, you and I talked about the $3 trillion spent in the war on terror. A big chunk of that was spent in Iraq. We shouldn't have left there. We left bases in Germany, Japan, and elsewhere because there's a reason that freedom needs protection. Freedom needs observation. They need to be held accountable to the bodies like the UN, NATO, and others. But we're not doing that. We've handed over Iraq to Muqtadr al-Sadr. Just Google al-Sadr and see what happened in Sadr City, see what happened in Fallujah, and elsewhere in which his agents of, dev of the devil, his agents of evil, murdered innocent women and children, Iraqi citizens that were not part of their, their Shia militancy, and American troops. I hope we begin talking more about Iraq. I am frequently on Al-Hurra trying to speak to their, their audience. It's an American Middle Eastern broadcasting company that's part of our operation to spread the word of public diplomacy, of freedom and liberty. And it gets into Iraq. And I can't tell you the number of Iraqi citizens that don't want to be run by al-Sadr, that don't want to be run by tyrants, that want their government to have a separation of powers and are waiting for the, the time in which they will be able to do that. But that constitution is protective of a Sharia state, not of a secular liberal democracy. But unfortunately, with influencers like Noah Feldman and others that were involved in the misdirected, misguided influence upon the legal system of Iraq from the outset in 2003, it got off to the wrong foot and has continued down the wrong path. It's still better than what was under Saddam Hussein. I still think there's more areas now in which we can have points of influence to try to begin to continue the work of the Arab Awakening. Now, the Arab Awakening spared Iraq because it had already shed its dictator, Saddam Hussein. But that 
viral movement. There are hundreds of newspapers now in Iraq that remain there. So al-Sadr is not going to put into place something similar to what the Khomeinists have. But if we don't start paying attention to it and start using Iraq, I think as a laboratory to operationalize some of the things I bring to you here on this program, I think it'll be another in a long litany of missed opportunities for reform across the Muslim-majority world. God bless you. Thanks for listening in again this week. I'll be back next week on Reform This, and I will say a prayer for every man and woman who gave their life to this country this Memorial Day weekend. Thank you. Thank your families. God bless you for giving the ultimate sacrifice to this country, to this greatest democracy on the world. Have a blessed Memorial Day. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.